Tom Shabila tells us that in September 1966, TV viewers with an affinity for space exploration, science, horror, or fantasy were no doubt talking about one of the most revolutionary science fiction shows to hit the airwaves, Star Trek. Star Trek was initially pitched in March 1964 by its creator, TV writer Gene Roddenberry, who called it a wagon train concept, built around characters who travel to worlds similar to our own and meet the action-adventure dramas which became our stories. Lucille Ball's Desilu Productions went into production with the color pilot episode The Cage in late 1964, and Shabila could have written the quote this way, went into production with the pilot episode, but he added the color pilot episode because this study of his is all about color. He takes time to tell a story that underlines just how new the concept of color was for television and the learning curve and the shift from black and white to color. He says NBC commissioned a second color pilot episode where no man has gone before with Captain Pike replaced by Captain Kirk, William Shatner. While on their mission, the Enterprise crew came across what they referred to as green-skinned slave girls. The green body paint was applied by Fred Phillips, who also did the makeup for the TV shows Bat Masterson and The Outer Limits, and John Chambers, who went on to do the prosthetics in the Planet of the Apes films. When the processed film was viewed, their skin was not green. It looked normal. It was assumed that a mistake was made in filming and the scenes were reshot, but with the same result. After a call to the film lab, a color correction technician explained that he thought that the lab had actually turned the women by accident green while processing the film. On both occasions, the lab then worked overtime to, well, correct the color and make the skin appear normal. Star Trek took place in the year 2265. The Enterprise was on a mission to seek out new life and new civilizations, and that phrase, to boldly go where no man has gone before, as stated in Captain Kirk's intro in the Thursday, September 8, 1966 premiere episode, The Man Trap. And... Although Star Trek was getting subpar ratings, the impact was being seen. The series began breaking new ground for television, pioneering new uses for color television, and it amassed a following like no other television show had before. Shabila shows us even more about the way that color was an integral part of the show. And he argues that Star Trek helped usher in the age of color and made viewing in color and owning a color TV more desirable. In 1966, RCA Victor, in fact, made Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock the face of their color television advertising campaign. When the crew members of the Enterprise were beamed to other planets or other spaceships, the effect was generated by a series of glowing orange lights. The phaser, the crew's preferred weapon, blasted blue or red electronic beams, 
Many of the episodes featured very colorful planets, villains, monsters, and alien beings, such as the green-skinned Gorn and purple giant space amoeba. Even the color of the crew's clothing was significant. The color of each crew member's shirt represented their role on the ship. Olive shirts were worn by the command division, red shirts by engineering and communications, and blue shirts in the science and medical staff. And we remember it all. All that from a new study titled Prime Time 1966-1967, the full spectrum of television's first all-color season by Tom Shabilla, who is a professor of speech communication at Luzerne County Community College and a Plains Township Commissioner. The book has been issued by McFarland Books. Tom stopped in at the WVIA radio studios to talk TV with us and his early habits first. I certainly have fond memories of growing up watching a lot of shows like Gilligan's Island, I Dream of Jeannie, Green Acres, shows that I, I did watch quite a bit. And also a little bit older, Get Smart, Dragnet, shows like that. And so I always have real fond memories of watching those growing up and just kind of became part of my pop culture growing up. Were they series that you would watch and then you'd talk about with your friends at school or was it? Was Absolutely. It... Yes. Yes. Now, I was not around for 1966. I was actually, uh, it was 18 years before I was born. But again, growing up, Nick at Night started showing a lot of these shows. And so, like I said, Get Smart, Dragnet, shows like that, I would certainly tune into and talk about in school. Yeah, yeah. Now, what did you go off to study? I was a communications major. And uh, so I went to King's College, graduated in communications, and I went to Marywood for my master's mm -hmm. in communication arts. So it was something that obviously was always in the background, and I love writing, and so so this became kind of the, the project. You could have approached these programs in any number of ways. How did you settle on one year, and we'll take a look at what was going ah, on then? So, actually, it's an interesting story. I, I write for a number of horror movie magazines, pop culture-type magazines, and my original idea was maybe it would be a, a magazine article, and... I started writing a little bit about some things and I said, you know, this could be a bigger project. And I didn't know what it would be yet. And I focused on 1966 for some reason, because my original idea was to come up with something called Beatles, Bond and Batman, the three B's of 1966. And it's been discussed before, but I thought maybe it'd be a really good idea. And I started doing a little bit of research into Batman. And one thing that I came across was, and it was just a little blurb, maybe on a website or Wikipedia or something like that. And it said, the 1966-67 television schedule was the first season that every show was in color. And that became my great idea. So that became the book. What made the difference? Why then? What was the technologies? So I take the audience through the invention of color, the invention, well, actually the invention of television. So the commercialization of television, the invention of television, the accessibility of television, and then the invention of color. And actually, color television was invented a year after television was invented. But it just took a really long time to perfect and a really long time to roll out. And it was really expensive. <laughs> it was really expensive to own a color television. So this was the year that color televisions, the price dropped because they started really honing in on the technology and the price dropped. And so People could start to, the average person could start to afford 
a color television. Now, in 1966, only 10% of all American households owned a color television. Only 10%. So the, the color season really only catered to 10% of all people. But it really helped drive sales of televisions. Actually, it went up about 10% every year. In reruns, also, the shows became much more profitable. Did the producers of these shows have to run out and get new equipment, or were they all ready to yes. go? Yes, yes. A lot of them had to get a lot more new, new equipment. Actually, I spoke to two members of the cast of Lost in Space for the book, and they said everything was new. All of a sudden, they had they, they had to bring in new sets, new plants, things that were very interesting, brighter lights for color. And also, things became much more, as a lot of things in 1966 and 67, very pop art. So uh, the sets had to become very colorful. Well, you have on the cover of the book... Oh, I dream of Jeannie, and boy, is she in a bright pink <laughs> yes, yes. number, I think, right? I think the colors, the cover certainly brings home the, the brightness of the season. And do the stories change in any way? Did you get a sense, or is it just the... It, it was really just the visuals. And, and I think a lot of shows could do more with color now. They could, they could certainly do a lot more. A really good example is the show Dragnet. If you're familiar with the show Dragnet, it came on uh, originally in the 1950s and did really well in the 1950s, aired throughout the 1950s. It did really well on radio. It was a radio show even before that. But it was a police procedural. It was very to the point. The police show up, they arrest the bad guy. That's it. But the show came back in 1967. January of 1967, Dragnet came back on the air, now in color kicked the door into color. The first episode was an episode called The Big LSD, where they arrest a gentleman by the name of Blue Boy, who has his face painted blue and and yellow, and it, it really kickstarts the psychedelic era. It kickstarts the color era of the show, and, and I think that that's maybe the best example that I have, is here's a show that aired seven seasons prior. It was cut and dry there wasn't really anything that stands out with it other than great stories but visually now 1966 it brings everything together it seems to me that what you've just described about the adopting and adapting to television in color was a lot like what happened here when the word went out that we had to go HD, high definition, and there weren't many people with high definition TV sets. We had to go out and buy all kinds of new cameras, expensive cameras, and <laughs> the whole chain. And the way that the purveyors of HD were trying to get buy-in from the public was to get them to watch sports on HD, to put them in bars so yes. that they would get the impact of this new popping, right? <laughs> exactly. And that's certainly what happened. Like I said, the very few people actually had color. So, yeah, people had to flock to stores to watch it. Actually, the first color broadcast in 1954 was the Rose Bowl Parade, which I think is a, is a perfect example of that, where you all of a sudden see the colors of the Rose Bowl Parade. And nobody had a color television, so people had to flock to actually the Tiffany Building in New York. It was one of the first places to demonstrate color TV. 
What are some of the names involved in the development of color television? Are they people we would know? No, uh, <laughs> really, unless you are familiar with with Philo Farnsworth is 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 one gentleman that that always comes up in the history of television. But yeah, it, really, it was a team effort from from a lot of television producers and things like that. And when you give us the stories, you have photos from the series that you're highlighting oh, and talking about. So this. we do have a, yeah, we do have a number of photos of series. Actually, one thing that I always found interesting was a lot of shows had albums that accompanied the show. So there is certainly a lot of that that I that I included something something from a number of collections of, of friends that I have where maybe there's a. Um, a board game. Oh, I have the Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea game included. So, so that's that's a cool uh, artifact. I tried not to pick the usual. I tried to find something that was out of the ordinary for it. Did you get a sense of what these series might have said about America in those days? Yes. I. I <laughs> that's an interesting question. If you think about certainly in terms of sitcoms and things like that, you certainly had a lot of spillover from the 1950s, still that general mentality from the 1950s. However, uh, you started seeing some newer type comedies that were starting leading into the 70s that started dealing with maybe more adult issues. And and certainly, again, back to, back to shows like Dragnet, dealing with now all of a sudden drugs and crime like that. So yeah, you start, you started started seeing it, started seeping in. Not all in the family yet. Correct. Right. And actually one of the things that I do talk about with All in the Family and, and shows like that, there's a whole section on something called the rural purge. And the rural purge was when shows like the Beverly Hillbillies, Green Acres, Petticoat Junction were all canceled by CBS. And it was called the rural purge. They just got rid of any show. One of the quotes is they got rid of any show with a tree and they replaced them with shows like All in the Family that dealt with more adult issues and were very urban. And some people saw it as an assault on kind of Southern values and and more conservative values as as opposed to more urban values. And so there's there's a discussion on who actually was to blame. Was it you know, really that and, and really at the time the, the ratings were starting to go down and CBS wanted to start looking to the future. When you look now at these series, do you see them differently now that you've immersed yourself? Yes, because I'm able to point out things where I, I found it somewhere in my research where they maybe talked about a specific episode. I, I knew maybe the ratings of the season that that year and I'm able to look at it and say, oh, here's where the show started going downhill. <laughs> here's where they started losing their audience. So I, I certainly look at it in a, in a much different way. Now, when did it come out? Came out in April. So it's had a little bit of time to get out there. Yes. So what are you hearing? I, I'm getting really great reviews from people on it. And anywhere I've been taking, it's been selling really well. And August 14th, the Mahoning Drive-In is showing the Monkees movie Head which is uh, an incredible series that came out that year. And right after the series was canceled, they put out the movie. And so I am, uh, I'm bringing the book there. So if, if, you, if anybody wants to come down to the Mahoning Drive-In on the 14th of August, it's going to be a, uh, quite the event. You're going to sign? And of course. Do you have a website or where do we find this? So it is, it is available online. Um, McFarlane Books is my publisher. Anywhere where fine books are sold. And the forward 
is by Frank Santo Padre, who was the co-host of the Gilbert Gottfried Amazing Colossal Podcast, hosted by the late great comedian Gilbert Gottfried. And Frank is a is a really good friend of mine, and and they've been really helpful with pushing the book as well on their social medias for the podcast. And Frank wrote a very heartfelt letter to the 1966 television schedule. And again, that podcast was one of actually the inspirations for writing this. And when I asked Frank to do it, he was more than happy to do it. So it's a really great forward by him. So if you were a fan of the Gilbert Gottfried Amazing Colossal Podcast, please check out this book. If you're a fan of any shows, like I said, Batman, Star Trek, Green Acres, I Dream of Jeannie Bewitched. If you're a fan of any shows like that, this is the book for you. The other thing is you teach, you teach Mm -hmm. college students. What does TV mean to them? Increasingly less, I think. Uh, Everybody has a a lot of different ways to watch things. And you don't have to watch it live. And you could watch it on a number of devices. Watch it on your phone. You can watch it on a tablet. You can watch it on a TV. You can watch it on a computer. Last night, tonight, whenever. You could pause it. There's not really a communal viewing. It's not everybody's watched this one thing yesterday. And we could all talk about it first thing Monday morning. Really, the only thing left is maybe live sports. It doesn't matter what we think about that. That's yep. what's happening. <laughs> but do you miss something about that? Sure. Set? Sure. Absolutely. I, I, I do miss, again, that, yeah, communal viewing where it's a unified, everybody's watched this one thing at the same exact time and then discussing it. You mentioned horror. You're interested in horror. Yes. What did you think of Dark Shadows? The TV show, I, I absolutely love Dark Shadows, the TV show. Uh, Barnabas Collins is uh, an awesome vampire. I do own the the Dark Shadows board game, <laughs> which... Is that a collector's item? It, it is. Actually, it's a collector's item if you have it with the original teeth. Because if you own the game, you, you have to wear the vampire teeth. You're Barnabas. And so that's the first thing everybody threw away was the teeth, because nobody wants your gingivitis from 1967. So I do not own the teeth, unfortunately. I don't know anybody who owns the teeth. All right. Well, if anybody's listening and owns the teeth, get in touch with Tom. He'll trade you. I'll trade you. If you didn't didn't wear it. (laughs) Are there producers who are doing retro series today that are send-ups of these things, or is that just all gone and they're not even bothering with that? I don't think anybody's really bothering. But again, yeah, there is, there's always a lot of love for these shows. You know, again, whether it's something that you grew up with or whether it's something that you've only watched in reruns, I, I think that there is a, a genuine connection that people have with, with a lot of these shows. You know, whether it's watching Batman in, in reruns. One story that it just seemingly always comes up is, again, at, at the time, people finding a house with the color TV to watch Batman. And it's always, it's nine times out of 10, it's Batman. Nine times out of 10, it's Batman. Trying to find, you know, going to the neighbor's house, going to your aunt's house down the road, going to your friend's house to watch Batman in color. And, and that, that seems to be, again, not something that missing, but certainly fond memories of it. And do you have an explanation why it's Batman and not Green Acres? Batman was just the right thing for the right time. Batman was a, a cultural phenomena for a year. And everybody needed to watch Batman. Again, back to pop art. It was very pop art. It was very colorful. It had over-the-top villains. It was campy. 
so you got it on a number of levels if you were an adult it was really funny if you were a little kid you got to see batman beat up the riddler and the joker and the catwoman and it was just a really cool show so whatever level you were watching batman you needed to see it in color Tom Shabella, a professor of speech communication at Luzerne County Community College, speaking with us about his new book, Prime Time 1966 to 1967, the full spectrum of television's first all-color season. Issued by McFarland Books in April, McFarlandBooks.com, M-C-F-A-R-L-A-N-D, McFarlandBooks.com, on Sunday, August 14th, from 6 to 11, there will be Monkey Mania at the Mahoning Drive-In Theater in Lehighton, and Tom will be on hand to sign books and enjoy the programming as well. The Mahoning Drive-In Theater is on Seneca Road in Lehighton. The evening will open with two episodes of the classic Monkeys TV series, and then the screening of the Monkeys' psychedelic feature film Head will follow, and that's on 35mm film. So that's Sunday, August 14th, Monkey Mania at the Mahoning Drive-In Theater from 6 to 11 p.m., Seneca Road in Lehighton, two episodes of the classic Monkeys TV series, and a screening of the Monkeys Head on 35mm film, and that's MahoningDIT.com for directions and so on. Mahoning, D-I-T, standing for Drive-In Theater. And for more on Tom Shabilla's book, McFarlandBooks.com, McFarlandBooks.com. And Tom spells his name T-H-O-M, and his last name S-H-U-B-I-L-L-A. McFarlandBooks.com, MahoningDIT.com. McFarlandBooks.com.